Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. We have something a little bit different this episode. I recently interviewed Nick Rives from Capital Studios about his work mixing the Atmos version of the new Billie Eilish album, Happier Than Ever. And that Atmos mix actually won the Dynamic Range Day Award 2022. I was able to include some of that interview in the webcast for the event, but we were able to talk for longer and a few people have asked if they could hear the whole interview. So I thought it would make sense to release it as a podcast episode. So without further ado, here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And of course, the reason you're here is that you mixed the Atmos version of the new Billie Eilish album, Happier Than Ever, I guess about a year ago, was it now? Is it longer? Yeah, it's about a year ago now. Uh, yeah, that's about right. It is nominated for this year's Dynamic Range Day Award. We've got a few Atmos albums in the in the lineup this year because they have great dynamics, um, which is what Absolutely. today is all about. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to beat about the bush. I'm delighted to say that this album you have won. So congratulations. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That's awesome. No, my pleasure. I mean, you know, uh, it was kind of, well, I love the album musically. Um, totally. I particularly love the Atmos version of it. Um, because the, I think the immersive format suits the, suits the album so well you know it just seems like a kind of perfect fit to me in terms of you know the kind of moody atmospheric you know it, it benefits as far as i'm concerned from having that extra space and that room to breathe it must have been uh, great to work on really good fun it was a ton of fun i mean i would i would put it on the short list of the most uh, engaging and and satisfying projects that i've ever worked on um for for all of the reasons that you mentioned you know it's the the music is just so perfect the composition and the layout and the detailing and the performances is is just it's like tailor made for the format. And so it was just really a lot of fun for me to just stretch out into the space. I make all my decisions based on the composition, so it just it made everything just felt smooth and natural. And the next thing I knew, I felt like I had this really great experience. So um, so I'm I'm very proud of the work. No, it's, that's it's fantastic. And it, and I'd like to get into asking you a few questions about kind of how you work when you're working in Atmos and um, specifically how the, the dynamics of the format kind of influence the way that you do things. But um, maybe first, just kind of for, for people who may not know you, um, so you work at Capitol Studios in LA. Um, how did you, did, did, were you always kind of interested in immersive audio and in surround? Is, was that your mission kind of from the get-go? Is that something you kind of grew into? How did it work? Actually, it was a very circumstantial thing. I was, I've been working at Capital for years and uh, I'm a staff engineer. And so, you know, I, as, as, as comes with that type of job, I just get kind of thrown at a wide range of, of different challenges, you know, whether I'm recording a band or mixing a band, recording for TV and film, uh, live shows, any of that, right? So, so I, I love, I pride myself on the diversity of the role. What ended up happening was Dolby was exploring the opportunities for Atmos to kind of, you know, exploring bringing Atmos to the music community rather than the, the television and film side of things where it was, you know, created and, and born. So a product of those conversations was that our Capital Studio C was 
built out into an Atmos mixing space. The idea being that it is a purpose-built for music Atmos mixing room, which at the time didn't really exist, right? So this was like 2017. And the only Atmos mixing rooms that were that 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 were happening were kind of dub stage style. So they were very like movie theater designs, like you know, like most dub stage. So huge rooms, speakers are way up high, tons of speakers very far away from you. And we we're like, okay, well, like how can we build this in a you know record studio style format? And what you know, what we kind of casually referred to as a near field um, build. And so, you know, the idea being that. You know, the LCR, the sides and the surrounds are all at ear height and they're relatively, you know, not close, but, you know, uh, certainly not a theater, you know, recording studio sized room um, with the height channels, um, you know, kind of brought in and directly overhead so that we're basically really um, kind of approaching it like a like kind of a traditional recording studio might, you know, at least that's that was our as a re- traditional recording studio. That was our interpretation. Um, and that and that was that was kind of the beginning of the adventure, you know? Um, so Art Kelm built that room or, you know, turned C into a compatible room. And, uh, and I was kind of given the opportunity to explore with no real rules or regulations or restrictions, you know, which ended up being a, a wonderful and enormous opportunity for me. So, but it kind of was circumstantial, you know, I was sort of the younger guy on the team and therefore had the least to lose by burning the hours doing a, experimenting with the new tech you know and uh, there was there was a definitely a period of time where it was like oh there goes nick he's gonna mix on those 20 speakers again let's see what that you know what i mean and it was like there were no rules there were no there was no commercial outlet for it yet so i wasn't held to any standards whatsoever um and it was just an absolute ton of fun you know and it, and it continues to be but over the years since then we have of course uh, you know in collaboration with dolby and umg we've developed these sort of uh, best practices we've seen the way it has come out at least you know these early days of it existing as a consumer format and what it looks like on the back end and so it's been this long and and really wonderful journey for me um but it was something that kind of happened sort of circumstantially and and i absolutely love every opportunity that has come from that yeah it's, it's so great when you get i mean i i did a lot of 5.1 mixing back in the day and i kind of got into it in the in the same kind of way it was you know it was the room that I was working out of that they wanted to do the install in and you know the the opportunity was there and I just said yeah I'll give that a go um and yeah same thing uh just loved working in it so like you say by now you've kind of got a I imagine a fairly well-baked process for for dealing with this stuff because I know that you know with the kind of explosion of interest in the format there's there's been a huge demand for existing albums to be um revisited i guess and and optimized for listening in atmos so maybe you could kind of just talk us through what that process looks for you kind of in, particularly in re- relation to to billy's album because other people i've talked to that you know you get given stems um and then they take the stereo master and that's their their reference so kind of step one for them is to match that original mix on master as closely as possible and then expand it out into the the spatial space is is that the same for you or do you kind of start from scratch and just build it up as as kind of as you see it how does it work yes and yes um the vast majority of the time including the billy records and uh and and very much the overwhelming majority of the mixes that i create are are based on stereo mix stems there have been some circumstances where we've gone back to multi-tracks um and that that offers some some fun exploration as well but I think the primary kind of purpose for that methodology is that as, as the, you know, the climate as it exists today is that records are composed and created in stereo. Uh, 
And and that Atmos is, uh, while only very recently has started to become a factor in considerations for uh, for composition, by and large, the majority of these records are are, are designed and, and mixed in stereo. And so my task, of course, is to kind of walk this interesting line between staying true to everything about the stereo that is either known and loved or was labored over intensely by the artists and the team. So staying true to that identity while also creating something compelling and different that is the Atmos experience, right? And that's kind of a fun and a sometimes challenging uh, thing to navigate, you know, um, especially uh, it, it's, it, it just varies from every project to every project. You know, pop stuff, it's different from hip hop, different than rock and roll punk, uh, EDM, classical jazz, you know, I've, I've had the luxury of exploring all of these genres. The outcome is always dependent on the nature of what's going on in the composition. But to get to your point, um, I take, you know, so I, so I get, I get the stereo master and, and I have that as my reference and I just park it in the, the LR and, you know, I will always have the opportunity to bounce between my Atmos mix and the stereo reference, which I do constantly and for everything I work on, right? Um, I need to make sure that I'm not deviating from all of these decisions that were labored over intensely by the, by the people who put together the stereo, you know, and, and, Every project is different in terms of my relationship to either the artist or the mixer or the producer or the label. So by, you know, anchoring myself in this perspective of like, you know, the stereo is my gospel and everything I'm going to create is going to be based on that identity, but take advantage of the tool set that I have, the experience that I'm able to create that doesn't exist in stereo. And so what that naturally leads to is my process, which is that every decision I make in terms of panning, and, you know, the experience from the listening position, both in speakers and headphones, is, is dependent on the composition. The composition tells me what to do, you know. So I would never make a statement like the piano goes in the rear or the, or the you know, the, the, the shaker goes on the, on, the, on the left. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it's, it's which I know is a radical oversimplification, but it's really like dissecting what it is, why these different instruments or sound elements or vocal elements exist in their part in the song what role do they play in the composition from like a you know kind of a formal almost score oriented perspective and then how can i capitalize on those compositional decisions to yield an experience that feels both natural but also exciting and kinetic right so you know a very common production element in contemporary music is the idea of like risers and stingers right that so, some element is going to bring us across the the bar line into the from the verse to the chorus and so i can i can use you know my space and my tool set to to accentuate those decisions like have something sweep from the rear to the front and then move back overhead or something like that you know what i mean um the idea that like in verse two there's this like mellotron pad whereas verse one was more stark and intimate it's like okay that's a new element and it's purpose is to bring us compositionally forward, right? We're moving forward in the song. We haven't all gone all the way back to verse one. We're now in verse two. It's got a different energy. So perhaps I can bring that Mellotron pad to somewhere in the space that we haven't really had energy before or in verse one is, is relatively quiet to really underscore the compositional decisions that are being made and, and, and expand upon them with the dimensions that Atmos has to offer, you know? So, uh, you know, and then also just think about storytelling, right? You know, we have to assume in general that the, the, the audience is sitting, you know, in approximately the correct space. And therefore, what is the story? What are the most important elements? And let those be anchors. You know, if it's a backbeat driven track, like any kind of pop rock or R&B thing, yeah, vocal bass drums in the front. They're what's going to not change. They're what's going to be 
you know, our grounding elements and our primary driving forces. And then all of our other compositional elements give us all of this harmonic, rhythmic, and contextual color and can be brought around us in meaningful and, and, and you know, compelling ways, you know. But then as I'm exploring that journey, I'm flipping back and forth to the stereo to make sure that I haven't deviated radically from those decisions, you know, regardless of how cool I might think, my, you know, what my decisions might be, you know, it's not my job necessarily to expand upon what's been done, but to translate it into our space in a way that's meaningful and musical and gives meaning to the to the to the journey in, in particular, right? So that the listener, whether they're a diehard fan or are just brand new to the experience, um, can explore what's different or meaningful about the stereo and the Atmos and see meaning in both experiences. You know, I mean, I'll take records. You know, personally, if I'm if I'm sitting at home in my living room, nice cup of coffee or glass of wine, I love listening in Atmos. But if I'm you know running on the treadmill at the gym, I'll probably go to the stereo, just because for the for that application, it kind of yields a different you know and more practical experience. And I think that's the beauty of what it is that we're doing now. It's not meant to replace. It's got different kinetics. It's got different dynamics. It's a different expression of what's ultimately the same story. And I think that they are able to coexist peacefully and, and, and complementary. And so I try to find my place in creating a mix that that suits that need um, in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned dynamics as one of the components there. And of course, that's the reason this album has has won the award. We had um, a few Atmos albums included in the, the list here. So there was Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa, Montero oh, yeah. by Lil Nas X, Solar Power by Lord, um, Sour by oh, yeah, Olivia really Rodrigo. Good. And nice. all of those, for me, when I move, I mean, even listening on earbuds, you know, um, moving from the, the stereo into the Outmos, it's all still there, but it's more. And for me, the way that it there's more is, is in the dynamics. Could talk just briefly about the kind of the technical aspects of that, because I know that Dolby strongly recommend if not require, that the loudest songs should be minus 18 LUFS. And I know that Universal in particular have taken that to heart. And of course, that's a yes. dramatic difference between stereo stuff, which could easily be minus eight or or louder. You know, so you're talking eight, eight to 10 dBs extra headroom. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the the reason for that is largely practical if you if you have this virtual mix effectively in the atmos format that can translate to um you know 20 speakers or even in the most humble situations kind of you know 10 or 12 speakers and also translate down onto earbuds in order mm -hmm. just to have the processing flexibility to be able to combine combine all of those elements without causing problems you need the extra headroom is is that an accurate way of describing it Yes, yes, that is the most practical way to approach the that change in deliverable spec, right? Is that you know we you're, you're creating a virtual mix that needs to conform itself to whatever shape it ends up, you know, being rendered out of, um, whether that's headphones or a movie theater, right? If you're in a movie theater with 64 speakers, that can do us certain energy dispersion pattern, whereas headphones, it's going to be a radically different one or, you know, a 5-1 system or, or a sound bar, right? Like the, I don't want to say limitations, but the constraints of any given playback system need to be adhered to, but we're only making the one mix. I'm only delivering the one file. So by creating that headroom, 
uh, it allows us to better access the widest range of playback environments uh, with the greatest level of consistency in terms of the way that energy is compiled and freeing us of the, the constraints of like hitting a hard limiter or, or the possibility of distortion. I'm not the best expert on loudness, but I deal with it in a practical way every day. Right. So, so like, let's talk about that minus 18 LUFs integrated concept, right? Uh, integrated LUFs uh, is a very relative sense of loudness and energy. And what do I mean by that? You know, uh, a big band or an EDM track or like a back tune with 90 million, you know, different instruments coming out of every, you know, place in the room at minus 18 will yield one perceived loudness that might be different than a vocal and an acoustic guitar that also is at minus 18 that will be substantially louder perceived energy than than the super dense hyper busy track you know and that's what's great about lufs but it's also what's challenging about lufs sometimes you know and so what we do is you know we try and mix in album format as 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 one does right you know so you've got eight ten twenty tracks um, and as you go through that album, it's of course an ebb and flow of different experiences. I mean, some, some albums are, you know, 10 singles and some albums have interludes and orchestral breakdowns. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's the wonderful diversity of music. So, you know, it is our role to create an experience that has continuity from top to bottom. And therefore it's nice to have a guideline like where Lust should end up as, as like a, as a limiting point, not limiting as in dynamic range limiting, but like, you know, okay, there's our, there's our, there's what we'll consider our loudest, you know, place in this experience is going to be, is going to be a track that, integrated gives us minus 18 olufs and every other track on the record can kind of be balanced against that to create that continuum and the, what i generally suggest and what i do personally is just bring down the other tracks to create that continuous experience and sometimes that can be a challenge absolutely and sometimes it can yield a, a fantastically theatrical result where you know you've got these intimate Verses and these intimate tracks and then these bombastic chaotic tracks that are full of energy and life and that dynamic experience is thoroughly satisfying as the listener you know we get that experience when we go to live shows we get that experience when you're in a room with a band it's the way it feels when you're playing in a band and it, it's a wonderful way to experience music when you have the opportunity to i'm very grateful for the opportunities that Atmos gives us to explore that dynamic range. You know, I mean, 18 Luffs Integrated still has plenty of opportunity for things to get loud and things to get quiet. You know, uh, like um, we're talking about the Billy record. So the, the title track, Happier Than Ever, I think is a perfect example of this. The first two thirds of that, you know, that, that track's perfectly thirds. And, you know, the first third is like very intimate and very, you know, uh, kind of, there's an atmosphere to it, but there's really this kind of intimate storytelling going on in that way that, that Billie Eilish is so incredibly good at, right? But her voice just brings you into this, like you feel like you, it's almost, you, like you almost get nervous at how intimate you are. And then there's this middle third transition period where we start getting these like electric guitars show up. Um, they kind of creep in and there's this nice effect. And then it brings us to this moment with these palm mutes. And it's like, okay, like, Musically, our energy is exciting. We've we've stepped up a level, um, you know, and the vocal gets gets a little bit a little bit larger, a little bit more impactful. And then we hit this back third that is just absolutely pedal to the metal. It is it is just explosive, crunchy guitars, backbust distorted drums, like I, the bass is just thunderous, and she's like screaming over the top of it or through it, I should say. 
kind of the absolute apex of the energy output in the entire record. And and the narrative of the song is is is, is wildly emotional. So the stereo mix is is awesome. And everything, the fidelity is incredible and everything sounds, you know, just really good and really locked into a perfect place. And it, and it'll speak on any system. Uh, what I was able to explore is the opportunity for it to grow and really hit when it gets to that big moment. And it is like violent. And I think that that's a really fun opportunity to, to take advantage of the, what the Atmos format has to offer what the minus 18 integrated lefts deliverable standard has to offer to really expand upon the expression of that performance and of that composition. You know, like I want to feel like I'm at that stadium and my hair's being blown back. That visceral excitement is, is in large part due to the opportunity to explore dynamics. And I think that's a really fun and meaningful uh, expression in all music. Atmos has given us an opportunity to kind of bring that back into what would be a more mainstream consumer experience you know i mean when i think about like this really great memory as a kid going and seeing um carmina barana at the san francisco symphony and you know the overture of that piece so fortuna you know they just drop the hammer bar one beat one literally you know and, and it's and it's just like explosive sound and then and then all of a sudden we're getting real quiet and we're building up you know and i mean i know that's the hallmark of classical music but that was just a memory that really landed with me the power of, you know, an unamplified performance of, you know, 90 people on stage doing this whole thing and just like feeling like I'm doing this in my chair and then I'm doing this in my chair, you know, I mean, just this really fun, um, you know, experience and and to now be able to, to, to bring that to the type of work that I do that's radically outside of that genre is enormously satisfying to me. Yeah, no, I, I'll bet. And it's, it's one of the things that's most satisfying for me about these Atmos mixes, because I mean, all of the examples that are on the, the shortlist this year, um, you know, if you if you have a, an Apple device and want to toggle the spatial audio on and off, so in which case, when you turn it, if you're streaming the files, if you switch spatial audio off, it will revert to the original stereo mix. And with sound check, the normalization enabled, there's not a huge difference in, in the, the loudness there. So you get a pretty good comparison of the two versions. And the vast majority of those are big, aggressive. I mean, the Dua Lipa album is seriously loud in stereo. Um, big time. But it still works in Atmos. You know, I over and over, people are telling me, oh, no, you need the loudness to achieve the sound. And I've been saying, do we, though? <laughs> you know, it's like maybe it's harder to achieve that intensity and that pressure if you're not slamming it right up against the the top of the scale you know but it's just a question i mean it's it, it's it's gain staging yeah the atmos mixes i think prove the point um and my hope is that with more people listening to them and experimenting with them they're gonna hear that and they're gonna realize that one of the things they love about atmos is the extra dynamics and maybe that will allow more artists and more labels to kind of feel like okay, well, we could experiment with that in the stereo versions as well, you know, and we could bring some of that cinematic kind of feel back to the stereo format because it's it's absolutely possible there. You know, you don't have the spatial elements, you don't have the height and the, the, the surround right. aspects, but we could we could be using all of that dynamics there and still get the sound for all of these genres. I, I guess you'd agree with that. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. And I would say that that has manifested itself in my own work. If I'm mixing in stereo, I think in a more dynamic way than I used to. We exist in this kind of post-limitation 
environment of, of, of consumer formats. We gotten very used to a very loud presentation of our stereo music. And it's easy to get very comfortable with that because, you know, we're naturally inclined to perceive louder as better. Um, or at least, you know, it's, it's, it's the knee-jerk reaction of comparing things that whichever version is louder is likely to be the one that will gravitate towards. I'm not saying all the time, but as a general rule, people tend to react that way. You know, I don't think that the, the nature of the way we're consuming music necessarily needs to be limited by that, you know, by the, by the necessity of hitting a certain loudness target. And I think that that freedom should offer us the opportunity to explore more dynamic experiences in any format of, of, of music consumption. And I'm cautiously optimistic that because Atmos so natively gives us that opportunity, that it will allow us as a community of, of creators to, to kind of explore that in every of our expressions, you know, and I, I would love to see that happen. No, absolutely. Completely agree. It's great that you're here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I am curious to find out what kind of reaction you get from artists and labels when they hear the Atmos mixes. I have to ask whether are you being put under pressure to make things louder and how does that work out? But I'm guessing people really appreciate and love. I've, everybody I speak to in Atmos tells me that artists in particular love the sound when they get the chance to hear it. The overwhelming experience that I have when putting artists and creators in front, you know, in the room, in the right spot, hitting play is positive. You know, people love it. They can explore things about their own compositions that you know, maybe had to be sacrificed in order for the greater good of the stereo experience. You know, there's all these opportunities for like fidelity and intelligibility of complex arrangements. Um, I did this War on Drugs record and their, their compositional style often is layering tons of different voices that are doing a very similar musical or harmonic expression. And I'm like, great, I'll spread that out. And we can explore all of those different textures in a meaningful way while also getting the aggregate experience of the original composition. And when playing it back for, for the mix engineer and, and the artist himself, uh, we, we had a ton of fun exploring those things and remember, oh yeah, well, that's right. We doubled that on the Jupiter and oh yeah, we you know, and it was just like all of these cool things that get to kind of unfold in the, uh, in the Atmos playback environment, which is great. To your point about pressure for loudness, uh, by and large, no, I'm not really under any pressure for that. I will say, however, it is something that is part of my workflow. I do pay attention to the, the feeling of the energy transfer that I'm getting from the stereo, and I will employ mix techniques to match those in different ways with my Atmos mix, with my stems and with, you know, just regular mixing prowess, right? Uh, parallels, you know, dynamic interchange, you know, uh, all of just kind of our regular techniques and some new techniques that are specific to the format. But, you know, I like I've had conversations with mix engineers where they're like, yeah, but there's just there's no mix bus. So like, I don't know how to get that thing. And it's like, I get you. And I didn't either. But then I figured out a way to do it in a compelling and different way. Like, is it the same? No, but the same isn't the job. The same is something different and new, you know, so like, you know, it's, it's called engineering, right? engineer your way into a solution, you know, you know, utilize all of the resources available to you, all of your experiences and your critical judgment. And you can create a mix that is, that reads as a very loud and bombastic experience when it needs to and intimate and, and, you know, uh, open and spacious when, when not, you know, and I think that that's definitely part of the gig. It's like, yes, sure. It's easy to slap a compressor or a limiter on a, on a mix bus at the end of the day. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to undermine that that in and of itself is an incredible art form, but um, 
it's more complicated to achieve a similar thing in the way object-based mixing in Atmos works. And, and while that is a challenge, it's not impossible to deal with. You know, we, we, you know, we identify what it is about, about those interchanges that, that are important and then figure out a way to create those uh, and, you know, without compromising the expression that you're trying to get out of, out of Atmos. You know, uh, rock and roll is a very sensitive genre for this exact conversation, right? The relationship between the kick drum and the rhythm guitar is wildly important in any you know, modern rock and roll present presentation, um, whether it's, you know, alt rock or metal, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, this is rock and roll. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, we have to go to great lengths to create that experience in Atmos while not curbing our ability to express what's important about Atmos, because you also don't want 20 speakers blasting crazy limited data because that's just super fatiguing and it's a difficult you know you just you get tired your brain gets tired it shuts down so many different parts of your brain are working when listening in atmos or any immersive format compared to stereo because it's engaging you in so many different vectors that you know that it, it triggers all of these other parts of your brain and and therefore it can be fatiguing so we need to be sensitive to that and explore ways in which we can find a nice you know a happy medium where we got you know great energy transfer and open, dynamic, compelling, immersive experience. While it's easy to be like, yes, we can be louder, we can be quieter, we can do all of this great stuff, um, there is a certain necessity to making sure that the, 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 the feeling of the music is matches what's so critical about the identity as it exists in stereo. While nobody's telling me make it loud, I'm making sure that I'm getting that perceived energy to where it's supposed to be so that it feels loud even if it's coming in at minus 18. And then my other, you know, kind of flip side consumer facing argument to there is that like, no matter what device you're using, uh, it may only have one button or knob on it. And I guarantee you that that is the volume, you know, and sometimes you got to reach for it. You know what I mean? I'm like, I think soundcheck is a great implementation of an automated volume, you know, cause it's not a compressor. It's just turning things up and down. Um, and I think that's great. I think that being aware of your environment and being aware of which experience would likely be better for you under those circumstances is also relevant, you know, like for the same reason that, you know, if you're, you're watching a movie on a TV with speakers in, built into a TV, you might want to use a reduced dynamic range feature. If you're on a home theater system, you would then not want to use a reduced dynamic range feature because you've got the headroom and you've got a device that's capable of putting out those, that level of sensitivity, right? For those of us who are engaged in the experience, uh, I think there's a wealth of opportunities to explore uh, how to make it optimized for what we want and what we need. And so knowing that that's true when I'm in the studio, I just try and serve the art to the best of my ability. Fantastic. Well, listen, congratulations. Um, it's Thank an amazing so album. The Atmos version is amazing. I love it. Thanks again for taking the time uh, to be with us today. We really appreciate that insight into how you work and how you, the opportunities of, of the Atmos uh, format. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you do next. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And thank you so much for the award. I'm very appreciative of it. I was very proud of that record. And so to, to be able to have a conversation about it is, is very satisfying for me. So thank you. That's great. Thanks, Nick. Cheers. Cool. All right, man. So there you go. I hope that was interesting or useful. Uh, it was great to talk to Nick, get some insight into that. And I do encourage you to start experimenting, listening to some of the Atmos mixes, even in binaural of these albums that are coming out because they are so much more dynamic than the originals. And you really get the chance to hear 
the benefits of that and also how it is possible to achieve the, the authentic sound of the material without having to crush everything up into a limiter. I actually recorded another interview on Dynamic Range Day this year with Justin Gray from Immersive Mastering, where again, we talked about this whole topic and got really into even more in-depth, uh, nitty-gritty information about mixing in Atmos, the differences between the binaural and the speaker mixes, and how dynamics play into that. So we will leave a link to that in the show notes at themasteringshow.com if you would like to take a look at that as well. Thanks as always to John Tidy for editing and mixing the episode. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. <laughs>